Welcome, neighbor, to Folk U Radio, Folk University's talk show, taking old school viral. I'm your host, Manda O'Fox Gillespie. It's embarrassing, all the stupid things I can think of to think about. Is there anything that could really bring Hello, neighbor, and welcome to Folk U Radio, where we ask our neighbors, what do you know? Folk University is an experiment in neighborliness, in slow learning, and using our interests, our skills, and our beliefs as a way of connecting and bringing each other closer in community. Today, we dig deep deep into the secret world of soil. We will look at the theory and magic with Caleb Summers, our first guest, and then we will get practical tips from Laura Ellingson about how we can build soil in our own gardens. We will hear from Carrie Saxifrage about what she's doing in her garden and Sarah Stewart get a glimpse from a local farmer into what's afoot this time of year. Where are you listening from today, neighbor? Who are the people that have walked and cared for the land, the water, and the air where you live, work, and play? Cortez Community Radio sits on the ancestral and territorial lands of the Klahus, the Klaaman, and the Hamako peoples. I'd like to thank this land all the way down to every single bit that makes up that soil, the people who have walked this land through time and all those that continue to love and work to honor this place we call home. Caleb, welcome to the studio. Thank you so much, Manda. And hello to everyone out there in Radioland and all of our friendly neighbors. It's such a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure for me to have you, uh, and thank you for for letting me twist your arm. Um, Thank you to all those people who ever let me twist (laughs) your arms, (laughs) because we couldn't do this without you. Okay, so I've been putting this show off for a really long time, and I'm so glad it's come together, because... Because soil, soil is like I don't know the new kale, the new the new pink. Like we're we're kind of into soil these days. Absolutely, and right now is the time to be talking about soil because if we look around our neighborhood, there are flowers coming up out of the ground, the buds are swelling on the trees, and plants are starting to come alive. And of course, no plant is a plant without their soil. Which is where I'd like to begin. Okay, and I have to take a moment to say that I know this theoretically, and in fact, in one of my books, I start it with saying that, you know, a farmer doesn't grow plants, they grow soil, um, or something along that lines. I may have gotten a little messed up. And so, um, so I've gotten as far as a gardener about understanding that soil is important, but not really understanding the magic of what soil is. Truly. (laughs) And thank you for the opportunity, because my hope is that by the end of this program, I will change the way you look at soil and at plants. And I'll start out by saying that 
we humans especially and even the plants that we depend on we're latecomers to this 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 thing we call the world the the plants have have been around for a great long time starting with the algaes and lichens that evolved into the prehistoric ferns and gigantic trees that we know all the way up until the the human influence that's created things like corn and wheat and the plants that we really depend on. But before all of that came around, this world was inhabited and ruled by and run by the microbiotics. There were bacterias and fungis and little tiny invisible creatures teeming around all over the place before the first plant ever dropped its first seed. So as plants started to evolve, they had to do so in a way that was not only not only complicit, but complementary to the ecosystem that already existed. Because the microbes, the microbiology there, had already taken over the world, was already doing just fine. And so the plants had to figure out a way, evolutionarily speaking, to work with the microbes. So that concept in mind, we all know that plants eat sunshine. The plants absorb the sunlight through the process of photosynthesis and turn sunlight into sugars and then grow. But what we don't realize is that a great deal of that energy that the plants take out of the sun and convert into chemical sugars goes down below the surface of the soil to the roots, not just to build structure, but actually to create something called an exudate. And an exudate is exactly what it sounds like. It is a substance that exudes from the surface of the plant's roots. And this substance is basically a concoction of very simple sugars, simple carbohydrates, and simple proteins, all generated from originally sunlight. And the plant's roots, and the above-ground parts of the plants as well, will actually be coated in these exudates. And the purpose of these is actually to communicate with the, the, with the system of microbes in the soil below. A plant will produce a certain combination of sugars, carbohydrates, and proteins, what I lovingly like to refer to as cakes and cookies, uh, for, the, for the microbes in the soil to elicit a certain reaction. So if a plant is lacking in, say, calcium, it will bake a batch of chocolate chip cookies because it knows that the microorganism in the soil that can convert calcium from a rock into a plant food available form loves chocolate chip cookies. So the plant will bake a batch of chocolate chip cookies, coat its roots with 
this delectable treat, and wake up in the soil these special microbes that will spoon-feed calcium to the roots of the plant. And plants actually know what they need. They know what they want, and they communicate through these cakes and cookies, through this sun solar-powered plant bakery with the community of organisms in the soil that will lovingly devour these delicious baked goods and will pay for them by providing the, the basic resources that the plant needs, be it minerals or water or nutrients. The organisms in the soil will do it all for the plants. And all of these, for the most part, all of these nutrients and things that the plants thrive on and need are already there in the soil. And all it takes is the microorganisms to turn them from a rock or a piece of organic matter into a form that the plants can absorb, a soluble nutrient that the plant will just soak up like a sponge and use to help itself grow and thrive. So there's this amazing interaction happening all the time between plants and the macroorganism that's called soil, where the soil, a healthy soil, I should say, we could get into that in a moment, but a healthy soil will have upwards of a billion organisms in a teaspoon and will have something like 8,000 different species of fungi in a teaspoon. And each teaspoon of soil will be teeming with all of the different kinds of microbes that, that participate in the ecosystem where the plant grows and thrives and lives in a way that, that supports the plant. Or I should say, the plants have learned to grow and thrive and work with the microbes in the environment where these microbes live. So basically, plants are servants of the soil, and the soil is, you know, will will keep nurturing the plants as long as it's the plants are continue baking delicious goodies. Is this a good time to 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 break in? Sure. I have just never heard such breath. a first of all, like such a wonderful <laughs> visual explanation. And also, I feel really dumb saying this, but I've never thought about the fact that we basically have been working on soil for millions, billions of years. And, yeah. that, and then we're just like, which gets me to so many complex thoughts, um, and including like, does the, you know, you used calcium as the example, does the plant actually inherently need calcium or does it create that because it's in relationship with whatever animal is going to eat it well that's a terrific question manda and i think that 
We could. I I would highly recommend uh, getting into some Michael Pollan, some Botany of Desire, where he really delves into the question of: Do we grow plants, or are we slaves to plants that have essentially trained us to ensure their genetic survival? Uh, you know, an apple tree is not going to go extinct anytime soon. Is it because they've become really adept at surviving in certain different climates? No, it's because they've trained us to grow them and depend on them by means of tempting us with their tasty, delicious fruits. Do plants grow where they do because they, you know, because the the microorganisms there were already providing something, or did the microorganisms say, "Hey, let's"? Let's let's open a bakery here, and uh, bring in some bring in some high quality, uh, you know, a French patisserie or something like that. That's a great question, um, and what it also reminded me of a point that that is often uh, glossed over or neglected by gardeners, farmers, etc., which is that plants plants can't really do much for themselves because of this interdependent relationship in which they co-evolved with the microorganisms of the soil, a plant has no actual ability to transform a, a calcium from a rock or a, a, a crab shell or wherever your sources of calcium might be into a form that it can use. Um, so all of the nutrients in the soil exist in a few in in different states um there's and i can't recall the names of them exactly right now but there's basically a soluble state which is what a plant can absorb and of course soluble means dissolvable it means can dissolve into water and just like that plants require soluble nutrients to 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 build their own plant bodies and to to grow and thrive. Most of the nutrients in the soil are not already soluble because if they were, they would wash away. They'd be picked up by the rainfall and just go away. Uh, But a plant doesn't have the ability to change a, a nutrient from an insoluble form into a soluble form that it can actually use. So it depends, it relies on the microorganisms to do that for it. It, the, it requires the help of the microbes to actually turn its food into a food that it can use and then even spoon feed it into its mouth or roots. So, um, so there is this, this dependence you know, a, 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 an, an earth and one of the questions you, uh, you, you sort of brought up as well is, well, what happens, you know, what if they aren't there? Or you, you know, you neighbors might be asking, what if there aren't the right microorganisms there? And what if, what if they're, what if they're missing? What if there aren't any in the soil? And unfortunately, that is the, uh, that's the current state in industrial agriculture, where we essentially have used enough chemical pesticides and fertilizers and herbicides that uh, 
industrial farmers have wiped out the community of diverse, healthy microorganisms, which has meant that the plants themselves not being able to feed themselves um, have to rely or depend on applications of soluble fertilizers. More inorganic, um, soluble fertilizer, which of course means that it uh, washes away in water, which means it doesn't stay in the soil. And in agriculturally dense areas, it's why there are such high levels of agricultural nutrients and pesticides in the drinking water because they, these soluble nutrients just wash away and wash into the water table or into the water systems, which then obviously end up flowing out of our kitchen faucets, and it becomes a problem. So the, the, the practices of modern-day industrial agriculture have really just focused on the plant, have said, okay, the plant really needs this, so let's provide it. Let's just dump a whole bunch of nitrogen fertilizer onto our plants because nitrogen makes them green. They need nitrogen, not realizing that that's actually a damaging act when the community of microbes in the soil are not doing what they do best, which is to cycle, absorb, and recycle these nutrients when the plant wants it, at the amount that the plant wants it, and exactly where the plant wants it. So that's why we have problems in industrial agriculture. Uh, it's why we have plants that are continually getting weaker and more disease-prone and more susceptible to invasions of pests, and why we continue using all of these chemical fertilizers because it's one of these vicious cycles where unfortunately we didn't look at the system as a whole and instead just focused on the minutia of the plant without recognizing the inter and codependence with the soil and just did what we thought was the right thing. And as humans, we are prone to doing what we think is the right thing and sometimes a little bullheadedly until we find ourselves in a drought or a, a famine of sorts and you know then we maybe have to rethink some things which brings me to the 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 natural question of well what can what can we do what can we how do we nurture this diverse community of microorganisms in our soils and the answer is on a very basic simple home level is uh, we we grow them we can actually nurture and grow and and create environments for these microbes to thrive that we can then add to our own soils and into our own gardens to create those environments that will enable the plants to thrive in the way that they're trying to do all the time and if they and and will do so long as they have that community of 
mutually supportive organisms uh, in the ground. And the way that we do that is through compost. Uh, composting is one of the, the most radical and beneficial and supportive of our home environment acts that we can do. When we take the organic matter that comes out of our homes and mix it up in the right kind of um, in the right kind of recipe, then we are nurturing and growing and uh, and cultivating this system of microorganisms that will allow our plants to to do what they do best, which is to grow and thrive and feed us. Um, body, mind, and soul. So there you go. Get out there and and compost. Um, didn't know that that was the ultimate advocacy that I would be doing here, but, uh, but there you go. And um, if you're interested in resources, uh, there's a... There's a great deal of information out there about this, um, about this theory, this practice. Uh, the the soil food web is uh, a, a, the Google search. I would suggest starting with uh, dive deep because there's a lot of depth to cover there. Uh, Dr. Elaine Ingham and the uh, her organization Soil Food Web Incorporated are providing classes and have published uh, books and information. Um, Earthfort.com is a company in the Northwest that provides uh, information, resources, and equipment for cultivating biodiversity on a micro scale. And just get out there and and start looking at the world in a slightly different way. Uh, the next time you go through, go for a walk in the forest, think about the not just the trees as the forest, but but what's below the surface as well, because it's all connected and it's all a an interconnected, codependent macroorganism uh, doing what life does best growing and thriving and carrying on. Uh, that's a beautiful vision. And, and now I'm going to ask you a bunch of perhaps annoying questions. Please do. <laughs> Those are my <laughs> okay, so um, one, I mean, you know, as we think about how long it took before we, like to build soil before we first started Farming. I mean, farming is really new um, in relation to the history of the earth. Is it like, can, is it possible to really um, create or restore what we're taking from it when it took so many, you know, millions of years to develop those microorganisms, to develop whatever systems that are, have created what we refer to as soil? Mm -hmm. um, 
are we like have we basically borrowed you know how we talk about with like with oil and things like that that we're just using all this sunshine millions of years of sunshine that we captured um and that we're then you know depleting in just a couple hundred years is that like is there a way that we are also doing that with soil or is it more hopeful? Like, can we rebuild it just through our, you know, little acts of home composting? It's way more hopeful than that. Okay, good. <laughs> it is uh, absolutely actually a, a very simple thing to put the organisms back to, to, be, to create an environment where the diversity of soil can really thrive uh, there are a number of case studies that I've witnessed myself of areas that have been completely devastated um, by commercial agriculture or by fire or by uh, over traffic by humans that with a simple application of a little bit of aeration, loosening up of whatever's there and an application of a healthy compost or some kind of inoculation of beneficial, diverse, happy organisms, the, the, the environment goes right back to thriving. It's sometimes mind-blowing how fast it can happen. The course of one year even, a, an area that was devoid of life and just incapable of supporting any sort of plants can be thriving and green. Okay, so I guess that's why, in part, you call it an organism or a macroorganism because it's more like a body that that will live on and on through all time that can be sick and we can make well versus a resource that we extract and it's done. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's always, you know, regenerating itself and adapting and regrowing and has, you know, peaks and valleys in its type of diversity. And that's what creates the different kinds of ecosystems that we know. A desert, for example, has a very little microbial activity. Our temperate rainforests here in the Pacific Northwest have some of the highest microbiotic activity in the world. And if you look at a, an ecological succession scale from desert into grassland to shrubland to deciduous forest to coniferous forest, the, the, di the amount of the density of and diversity of the microbiology in those different ecosystems increases with each stage. So everywhere around us is this kind of generation and regeneration occurring somewhere along that successional ecosystem scale, depending on what the environment can sustain, being sunshine and water, essentially. Uh, and temperature, I suppose. The, the Antarctic is n perhaps not exactly a, an immensely biologically diverse place. However, I will say, now having said that, that the, the soil just beneath the permafrost up north is some of the most biologically diverse soil in the world. So just because it's not sustaining life right now, because it's frozen, 
doesn't mean that it can't or that it didn't or that it won't again sometime in the future. It's, it's all happening all around us. And if we as humans are, you know, start looking at the system as a system and not just at the individual parts and treat it as a system, then we can really quite easily with the resources and energy that we have available to us support that and 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 i mean not make it work for us but work with it in a way that is mutually supportive and we can grow ourselves some some human loving uh uh humans some apple loving humans uh, I love the idea that we are we that we are at the the whim, or that the masterminds are actually the plants and the microorganisms that sustain them, not us. Precisely. Let's thank you so much. Do you have last words of wisdom that you would like to? I feel like your whole that was just like thirty minutes of pure wisdom, but. <laughs> um, well, just be curious. Look at things a little differently. Everything is a system and and keep on keep on keep on asking questions. Keep considering and obey the Apple overlords. Obey the Apple overlords. The fruit ones. The, the fruit ones. Not the, oh not yeah, the not the ones. not the Mac computer ones. This is not a plug. Uh, maybe I should send it in and see if they'll give me a whole big become sponsors. Um, thank you so much, Caleb. I really appreciate it. And we're going to have a moment of music before our next guest. So if you're listening and you want your soil related or even just garden related questions answered, you can call in. We'll try to get them answered. The number is 250-935-0200. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, neighbors.
you for listening to Folk U Radio on CKTZ, Cortez Community Radio. We are talking about soil today, all things soil and what you might be doing at home, both to build your soil and get your garden and or farm started. 
We are really lucky now to welcome Laura Ellingson to the studio. Laura, thank you so much for being willing to be here. Thank you for having me, Manda. When people say thank you for having me, Manda, what they really mean is now I hope you'll stop harassing me after this. Um, And that's okay. (laughs) So um, a lot of people, a lot of listeners will know you from your work hat, which is with Fairhaven Gardens and Nursery. Um, uh, So, you know, I think probably we kind of look to you as an expert anyway, at least with the plants and the trees, but you're going to talk to us a little bit today about soil and what we do to get to the plants and the trees. So where do we start? Well, everything, everything starts with soil. um, And healthy soil is the foundation of organic gardening, building healthy soil, which does take time. Um, And actually, it's it is my favorite part of gardening, I think. It's one of the most exciting parts of gardening is creating soil. Um, and there are so many ways you can do that. It depends on if you're going to be gardening, if it's for annuals, it's your vegetable garden, if you're creating soil for your trees and your shrubs and your perennial garden. Um, I think right now, because we're all starting to think about our vegetables, we can talk about um, what what does the vegetable garden need and how do we create beautiful soil um, in our vegetable gardens. Um, the On Cortez Island, we have so many different types of soil. Obviously, we've got complete gravel. Some people are starting with gravel. Other people are starting with a heavy clay. Are we going to deal with those things differently? Somewhat, but not completely differently for building soil. Um, It does start with making beautiful compost. Um, And you, you can create compost in the compost pile, which we all we all want to do, you also can create a living compost on top of the ground you have been given, um, on top of our native soil, which we call sheet mulch, uh, I think, or lasagna gardening, uh, which is layering, layering your basically building a compost pile on top of the soil. Um, and planting into that. So I think that we can start with what we'll talk about composting and building compost. And also let's talk about our what do plants want? What nutrients do they need? And what do those nutrients do for the plants themselves? Yes, and... Uh, And I really like this idea of talking a little bit more about the lasagna gardening technique because it kind of seems like something that someone, you know, slightly lazy gardener like myself might do. And so uh, I want to go into what not to do, like what not to do with that, too, because I have to imagine there's some things you don't want to layer in a lasagna bed. But but often I'm wrong about these things. So, so yes, like walk us through all those things. Okay, let's start with. We'll come back to lasagna beds. Um, let's start with our nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. What do what do our plants need to grow? Um, whether they're a tree, a shrub, a 
perennial, and annual. Uh, they all need these macronutrients. You've got your macronutrients and you've got your micronutrients. Your ma macronutrients, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, calcium's a little bit in there too, are the nutrients you need most of. Your micronutrients, your boron, your selenium, your all these, they're the nutrients that you need in smaller amounts, trace nutrients. So what do we want? What are we wanting to put into our soil to create this beautiful, healthy soil that, that creates a beautiful biome for our microbes and that relationship between, between the plants and the microbes and the uptake of nutrients. We're already getting, getting phone calls. We're getting happy fans. <laughs> um, so what does, what does nitrogen do for plants? Nitrogen is the nutrient that is going to give you give your plants that beautiful green healthy growth that strong upright beautiful growth and tons of it um and where are we going to find nitrogen organically we're going to find nitrogen um in really green things really so i'm thinking about the our compost pile or your sheet mulch so where what are we going to put into our compost or our, or our sheet mulch bed when we're layering it that's going to give you that nitrogen because we want to give our garden a really balanced set of nutrients um so you're going to find your nitrogens in anything that you would think of as being a hot that's going to heat up your compost it's going to heat up your sheet mulch uh your manures all of your green, your green growth that you're pulling out of your garden, your weeds. Weeds are actually, I love weeding because weeds, every time I'm weeding, I, th I thank them because they are giving you this beautiful green nitrogenous growth. They're pulling up the uh, micronutrients and all of those minerals from deeper in the soil. You're adding them to the, your compost and they're, they're giving you all kinds of nutrients, but a lot of nitrogen when they're nice and green. So you're, you're going to get your nitrogen from your green leafies, from your manures, from seaweed. We all know how seaweed, if you leave it in a pile, can get really hot. Um, and then, of course, there's things like the in the granular organic meals, you can get blood meal. That's really high in nitrogen. Feather meal. So if you've got feathers... Um, all of that is you're, you're going to create that beautiful green leafy growth. So that's your nitrogen. If you, if you've ever looked at a, a, a fertilizer bag, you know, a, your organic granular fertilizer, or you've looked at a manure bag, compost bag, they're going to have a NPK and you're going to have numbers. Um, so it might say three, five, Two, that's your nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Um, your nitrogen is your first. So then you've got your phosphorus. Your phosphorus is next. Next, it is going to give you the strong, strong roots. It's going to promote your root growth, your flower development, and your seed development. Really, really important. Phosphorus is the only one of the nutrients that does not move or leach through the soil. The others can get pushed down from the top through the soil with rain your phosphorus you've got to get down in there 
um, it's 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 got to be right by the plant roots. So your phosphorus you're going to get from bones, so bone meal. Um, you're going to get it from rock phosphate. Uh, it's not it's not quite as readily available uh, just in in you know in your garden. You've got to bring it in from the outside a little more. So bones, fish bones, if you've got fish frames. Um, chicken manure actually has uh, the the phosphorus in it. Um, bat guano, pig manure. So there are some manures that do have phosphorus. Um, your third your third nutrient is uh, your potassium, and your potassium is in, these are all incredibly important. But your potassium is what's going to give your plant that beautiful, sturdy, strong growth, and it's going to um, create your disease resistance and that vitality, so that strength, disease resistance, and it's going to give you the quality of growth. So your quality of fruit production, your quality of leaf, it's going to give you um, yeah, the quality. So it's incredibly important. You can have strong, nitrogenous, quick green growth, but without your potassium, you're not going to have the strong root. You're not going to have the flower development without our, that's the phosphorus, phosphorus root, flower development, potassium, your strength and your disease resistance. And potassium um, is going to come from your wood ashes, potash, uh, seaweed, green sand, which is something you can bring in, you buy it, alfalfa, um, a quick note on alfalfa, alfalfa meal, uh, really great source of both uh, nitrogen and potassium. You can get it really cheap, add it to your compost, add it to your garden, uh, the pellets that you feed, rabbits, um, you can just get big, big bags of pelletized alfalfa, add that. Roses love it. Um, those are your three macronutrients. So when we're, you can see that's a wide array of things, but that's why you, you want to make sure you're adding your green leafy growth, your manures and seaweed and all these different things to your compost pile when you're building it because you want to be giving all of these nutrients to your plants and creating this soil that's rich in all of them. Your micronutrients you're going to get through through all of those things actually they're all going to have different levels of micronutrients. That's also why you want to have a great diversity of what you're putting into your compost in your garden because the greater the diversity the more balanced all of your macro and micronutrients will be. And the healthier and happier your microbes will be, and the healthier, happier your plants will be. <laughs> I, I just had a one tiny moment where I was like, oh, man, it's so much more complicated than just green and brown. <laughs> it's but, just green and brown. Yeah, okay. it, it really is. <laughs> just a lot of different greens and a lot of different browns. Um, uh, I'm, I'm believing that, um, uh, okay. And so then 
uh, can we go back to that lazy thing of yes. of lasagna gardening? So one of the things that I started having just like a tiny moment of despair around, okay, which is if you're building kind of soil as you're also trying to grow your 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 vegetables, which is one of the reasons that, for instance, I have done some lasagna gardening in the past and just don't take any advice from me because I'm so new and don't know what I'm doing. But um, I like one of the things I just thought of is like, well, then how do you ever get um, phosphorus to them? Because like if you're building things, you know, if you've put something in the ground and you're kind of building around it and lasagna gardening, um, then do you have a problem where you're not getting the potassium, I mean, the phosphorus where you need it, um, you know, down at the roots or will it still move enough? And, and when you're doing the actual lasagna gardening, then do you have to be extra careful about things like weeds um, and putting weeds, you know, on your garden bed that are going to take root and become what you're gardening? You know, actually, gardens are incredibly forgiving. Incredibly forgiving. You, yes, you're... You, your phosphorus is your phosphorus is actually going to be just because just by the nature of building a lasagna garden you are layering so you are putting all the different nutrients as you build it they're they're going to be integrated in all the different layers so you're not you you don't have to think that your your phosphorus is just at the top it's it's going to move you're going to be and you're moving the soil around you're not going to it's not going to be completely undisturbed. You've got worms in there. They're moving the soil around. Soil isn't static. It does get moved. So you're, you're, you're not going to have to worry about that with your phosphorus not being in the right place. And you also have to trust. Trust your gar- Trust that, you know, nature actually really likes to work and, and, um, and balance itself. So as long as you're bringing in, a, you know, a wide array of nutrients in organic form, it's going to eventually create its own balance. Weeds. Oh, you yeah, mentioned weeds. the weeds. Um, you can be really neurotic gardening. You know, you can probably be neurotic in anything in life, but, you know, you can test your soil and make, you know, get worried about all the different nutrient levels. You can be worried about putting these weeds in this pile and these weeds in that pile. There are some weeds you definitely don't want to introduce into your, your, your sheet mulch bed or your lasagna bed or your compost pile, although compost piles generally do get hotter if they are built with your good brown to green or carbon to nitrogen ratio um, and will cook some weed seeds. Uh, Horsetail, you really do not want to be putting that into any sheet mulch or compost pile unless it is a specific, say, compost pile for a horsetail zone. I've got separate compost piles. I do have a horsetail zone at my place the compost for the horsetail is a completely different pile. And I tend to put some of the more, the the weeds that I really don't want 
it reintroduced into the veggie garden into that pile and, and try to keep that pile a little bit hotter. And it does cook the horsetail. Um, so there are certain weeds you do want to keep keep out. Um, in ter- but in terms of weeds, you're going to weed your garden. So generally, um, it's more about just getting that organic matter into your compost pile, into your sheet mulch, bed, sheet mulch bed. Just use what you can, and um, you're you're going to weed your garden later, anyways. The, whether you've put those seeds into that into your compost or not, there's going to be weeds. Nature abhors a vacuum, so wherever you have not planted a plant, it's going to grow a plant, which you know comes in the form of weeds. But remember, love your weeds. Pull them, thank them, add them to the compost pile. I, I, I like that idea. And I've really noticed that in my own battle with scotch broom, um, which, uh, you know, I don't abhor as much as I abhor, for instance, uh, what is the thing that, um, bamboo. But I still am like pretty freaked out about Scotch broom. But in my eagerness to like pull it all up in some places, then I've left behind disturbed soil, which it just loves. And then it all came back because I didn't plant something else. So I have witnessed that um, that maybe not respecting fully <laughs> the, the weed and what it's trying to do um, and why it might be there. So can we talk a little bit about if you see soils that do tend to grow particular kinds of things that we don't want scotch broom um what what is it saying can we can we read that as sort of it's saying something to us well that is the vacuum again it is scotch broom for instance is incredibly excellent at filling the vacuum in disturbed poor soils scotch broom is a nitrogen fixer so scotch broom is taking unavailable nitrogen from atmospheric nitrogen or nitrogen in the soil and turning it actually into an available form for other plants it is a weed it takes over but it's actually it is doing an incredibly important job in the ecosystem Um, alder also is a nitrogen fixer all of our legumes, our peas and beans um, in the garden are nitrogen fixers. So we do, that. they're actually incredibly important in the ecosystem. And very often, again, the weeds are filling a vacuum. So. And can we think about then something like scotch broom as, is it called a successional plant? Uh, you know how alder, like yeah, yeah, alder will come in and then mm-hmm. it makes kind of way for other trees later to come in. Can can plants do that as well? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, broom, broom in particular. How do we end up talking about broom? Is <laughs> it's it does it 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 also does outcompete a lot of our native plants. So it is something we really. Although it is fixing nitrogen, thank you, Broom. You've done your job. You, you need to go now. And in a lot of those same locations, something like Salal or or in, in Dryer, you know, there's there are native plants that also would fill that vacuum. They might be outcompeted by the Broom because they're not as vigorous 
or you know, they're not growing as quickly. Broom's just incredibly good at at doing what it does is getting into those vacant spaces and fixing nitrogen. Okay, so I'm sure now everyone is just hoping that I will ask you about what they can be doing, um, what kind of composting they could easily be doing right now if their goal is soil. Yes. Okay. So composting, sheet mulching, we, we've... Uh, I'll, I'll talk about your compost pile, but do understand the sheet mulch is very much the same. It's the same technique. You're just doing it directly on the bed, and it's not going to be a four-foot by four-foot big kind of bin. Um, so building beautiful compost, it is really fun. Um, your 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 most important thing is getting your nitrogen, uh, carbon, ratio and we can look at those as your greens and your browns so you've got your your nitrogens which are your greens and your carbons which are your browns generally you want something like uh 25 carbon to one nitrogen however that doesn't mean you're putting 25 inches of brown to every inch of green because every carbonous organic um, plant or that or or the wood chips or or that type of thing that you would put in also has levels of nitrogen and every nitrogenous thing would have levels of carbon so um what i Keep going. Okay. Um, that's a loud one. I, I yeah. It's a it's a brand new phone here at the radio. We have a brand new phone. I just don't know how to make it. Oh, okay. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um. So a a really good a good ratio of your if you're thinking about greens to browns. Basically, it's almost one to one. Um, or slightly more carbon to nitrogen and what that's going to do for you is it's going to keep keeping a keeping a pretty level ratio is going to keep your compost from either getting too stinky and slimy which is too much nitrogen too much green or too dry and slow slowly decomposing which is too much carbon or brown um and we talked about what's your nitrogen phosphorus potassium what what you're getting your nitrogen from your phosphorus from your potassium from in the in the uh, in the natural environment um in your compost you're going to be adding all of these things and so your your greens are going to be obviously your manures and your um your hot manures, I should say, which isn't visually green, but it's considered a green, a hot manure. Your any vegetative growth are your greens, seaweed, um, fish frames, um, all of all of those things that are juicy. Think of them as the juicy. That's what's going to heat up your compost pile. And then your um, browns are going to be your straw, leaves, um, 
say alder chips at times not you don't want to put any chips that are going to be too slow it's going to slow down your your composting um and you're going to layer those it's really important to layer and i i guess one thing i would want to just mention with compost is how how are you heating it up right you want it to work really quickly so i just i mentioned that carbon too much carbon it's going to slow down your composting um too much nitrogen is going to turn your compost into an anaerobic stinky mess and you want to keep it really aerobic which is means keeping air air getting into it um and what's what's heating up your compost i don't know if you've ever wondered that but it's actually the microbes we're back to microbes microbes when they work really hard they're eating all of this delicious stuff that you've given them um they 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 eat the nitrogen to break down the carbon so the more nitrogen you have the easier the carbon's going to be to break down and as they're eating their little miniature bodies are vibrating and moving and moving and moving and that creates heat so when you've got really good microbial action breaking down that nitrogen your compost pile gets really hot, which is a really good sign. And that's also going to cook your weed seeds. You're not going to, if you can create a really nice hot pile, you're not going to have to worry too much about weed seed and so on that you're putting into it. I definitely would not put broom seed in my compost pile. They can, broom can go through a fire um, and still sprout. So, um, yes, what's our next thought on compost here? Yeah, no, I feel like that's good. And I feel like this is the first time that I, 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 I heard you saying layer your compost. And I've heard people say layer your compost. And this is the first time they actually understood why, um, which maybe means that I'll start layering my compost um, finally. Uh, so if people um, want to learn more, where do you send them? I mean, I guess they can come and see you Fridays and Saturdays at Fairhaven Garden. They can. When, when are you going to, when are, when do you open? April. Yeah. Starting in April, you can yeah. go see Laura. Or anytime with Friday a phone call. Friday and Saturday. <laughs> and I do love talking about anything to do with gardens, so. She's not, I'll, she, I'll she's, she's, did you hear her? She's willing <laughs> to give free advice. <laughs> um, okay. And then can people like, do you have books that you recommend, videos, um, or just talking to, to neighbors? What's, you know, when people are I think, starting? I think all of those things, um, talking to neighbors, experimenting, um, and just building compost just and loving it just know every time you've got a wheelbarrow load and a really easy way to do it is a wheelbarrow of greens a wheelbarrow of browns a wheelbarrow of greens a wheelbarrow of browns um just know that you're creating this beautiful soil for next year uh i guess one more thing we should mention about compost uh, kind of the um, the the size matters for heat production you want it to be at least three by three by three or four by four by four is great. Um, and then you're going to, that's a nice volume to heat up nicely. Um, and then as it heats, it's going to shrink. And you can add more. And it'll heat and shrink and heat and shrink. 
and you're adding more as you go. Eventually, once you've got a mass that has shrunk enough times and you're kind of still at that three by three or four by four, you can start your next compost pile and let that one sit. Um, you hear people turning their compost, which, you know, we're all eventually get older and things like turning compost, which we do with great excitement in our 20s, doesn't feel the same in our 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s. So you you can let your compost sit. You don't have to turn it. If you turn it, it will it will heat up again and again, and it will compost much faster. But compost you build this spring is going to be ready next spring. Even compost you build this fall is going to be ready by the late spring next spring if you if you get that nice layering that nice layering brown green brown green or carbon nitrogen carbon nitrogen and make those mi- microbes happy thank you so much laura that was awesome it was a perfect follow-up from the the beautiful uh, lesson on soil that came before and we have our next guest calling in eagerly so um i am going to play music and answer the phone Thank you so much for listening to Pokey Radio on CKTZ. has gone well. We have Carrie Saxifrage on the phone with us. Carrie, are you there? Yeah, and I can hear you. Oh my goodness, we have a brand new phone today uh, in the station, so um, it's already caused complexity, but it works, so I'm happy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Carrie, for being yet another person who said yes when I desperately asked for you to come and talk about <laughs> the mysterious world of gardening. Um, I, I did. 
share my non-expertise yet again, but I am always happy to talk with you. <laughs> well, uh, you're you're an expert novice at uh-huh. something that um, many of us want to get better at. Uh, in a, go on. I was going to say I'm an amateur. Amma being love, so that's the basis of the word amateur. I love my garden. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that with me because that just feels like that the the byline of folk university which is the idea that we can love ideas and love things that we're passionate about and 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 that's enough yeah <laughs> oh so thank you so much i i want you to start a little bit about to uh, if you would just share a little bit about your gardening philosophy because i find it very inspiring and i think others will as well Hmm. Okay. I'm a major mulcher <laughs> because we get such heavy, intense rains, and I just worry about all of the beautiful soil structure and nutrients getting washed out. So I just put, you know, diff- different things on different parts of the garden, depending on what I have available, like leaves, cardboard, straw, seaweed. So I like to keep it all covered. And then, um, the tohis tear it up all winter, so that's a little bit of a challenge. And then the other thing that makes it a challenge is the wood bugs also think this is a splendid habitat. And so I have to transplant everything into my garden. Like right now, I'm starting snap peas from seed. I start everything from seed. And then um, I'm having an irrigation system this year a better one inga is the irrigation master on the island and she's going to um put it in so that's going to be a game changer because i put so much time and energy into my garden and then i think it doesn't get enough water so that gets a little bit wasted and then also you know i just grow the things that i really love to grow and that i can eat all winter long like we eat we're still eating our winter squash we're eating our beans um, I grow a lot of tomatoes and then I kind of broil them and dehydrate them and then I freeze them and they make anything they go into really amazing. So, and then we have kale year round. So I don't do as much variety as a lot of people, but I do, we do eat from our garden through the year. So that. Can can you talk a little bit about, um, because we've been focusing a lot the, uh, today on soil, um, and I really like how you added the idea of preserving the soil and the structure of the soil through, um, through mulching. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you approach growing your soil? Yeah. Yes. Well, I'm putting in two new beds this year. And I'm just putting right on the turf that's grown kind of a layer of super rough compost and then a layer of seaweed and then a layer of soil and then a layer of cardboard and then a layer of straw. And I can pretty sure that by the time it's, it's time to put in um, squash or tomatoes into that bed, the earthworms are going to have gone up and down, up and down through all of those different layers and mixed them together. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't buy a lot of 
amendments, although I do buy Linnea cow manure when I can because that stuff is amazing. Um, and I get goat manure when I can, but I don't buy like the industrial stuff so much. And I just keep adding things and you can just really see it in the soil. It's, um, you know, it's crumbly. You can see the little shreds of mycelium through it. That's really beautiful. Mm, I love yeah. it. So you mentioned that you are starting snap peas right now. Um, can you talk about uh, what you, you know, what else you're doing in your garden or preparing to do in your garden right now? And do you have any advice that you would offer people about what they might be doing? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I just finished pruning the fruit trees. There's still time to prune. Um, and then it's a good time to plant perennials. We've got a chestnut grove, and chestnuts are um, they're sort of called they're they've been called the grain that grows on a tree because they're they've got a really similar nutritional profile to say brown rice, but twice the protein, and they just put so much they just put out so much food like it's really amazing. So I'm really encouraging. Um, people to plant chestnuts and we have some available so it's getting toward the end of the window for transplanting perennials and then I've done my seed order every time I read the salt spring catalog Dan Jason about soybeans I'm like oh I've got to do soybeans this year and then I'm also pretty excited about butternut squash this year because it's so rich and it kept so well and um, so started I've got the snap peas and purple sprouting broccoli because that can overwinter and it's just beautiful and it's a nice early broccoli and then i'm going to be starting leeks i've got just this little tray with a grow light over it so i'll be starting leeks when i have a little more room in there and then it's kind of the big infrastructure time also like putting in a proper irrigation system for the first time after 25 years. I can't tell you how excited I am about that. And new posts for the raspberry trellis. And I've always um, had a garden without pads, or not always, but I just hate tending to pads. And uh, I'm succumbing. I'm, I'm, we're digging, I'm digging pads into the garden now and establishing the new beds. So, yeah, it's just a really good time for infrastructure. Oh, I, I, I love that idea. Okay, and I just have to go back because you mentioned um, broccoli uh, and maybe it was also kale. Um, are you starting those then right now? Yep. Okay. Purple, I'm starting purple spotting broccoli. I mean, most people start broccoli for transplant in early March. But this purple sprouting broccoli, it doesn't have the full heads, and it's kind of an earlier variety. It can even overwinter. And then um, I don't grow onions, but if I did grow onions, I'd be starting those now. Uh, I'm not going to start lettuce yet, but some people do in mid-February. Definitely time for leeks. And I'm anticipating what tomato varieties I want to grow. And, you know couple more weeks for regular broccoli yeah and do you well at first while everyone's listening um i got some chestnuts from you last year and i planted them and uh at least one didn't make it through the heat wave um but 
uh, the other ones seem to be doing okay, but I think I want more. So uh, do you have enough starts this year or they'll, you know, startlings that other people could come and, and get some chestnut starting help? If somebody wants chestnuts, they should call me. I'm in the book and I do have one for you. You want at least two. And uh, yeah, yeah, chestnuts are amazing. You know, they were they were kind of the major crop, or no, the major wild plant in eastern North America forever. Like the First Nations people ate them, the animals ate them, and then around the turn of the 20th century, like 1904, the Asian blight came over and just killed like. 40 million acres of chestnuts, like maybe the biggest ecological crisis ever, but it's outside of our generational fight. So we don't really think about it, but it means that North America is the only continent that doesn't have a big chestnut culture. Like they have it in Asia, they have it in Europe, because it's such a good food source, like so many calories for so little effort, really good for food security here on the island. Yeah. And um, it's super delicious. Like, like they take a lot of time to shell, but they're really yummy. We've made some chestnut flour, and we eat them roasted with oil and salt. Yeah, I can't, I can't say enough about chestnuts. Well, I think the people who come from the east, um, as I do, really well. At least I, I can't come from the east in the states, and I grew up with a great love and appreciation of the chestnut because it was so influential uh, in early. Um, kind of early development, really, of of our more eastern place, and then the blight, um, just, you know, took so many of these beautiful, beautiful trees. And I'm one of the lucky people who's gotten to eat all sorts of chestnut things, often from you, um, including the most incredible chestnut flowers and things. So, um, it's it is an incredible tree. And is it the is the book the overstory that talks about a bit about the history of the chestnut? Yeah, yeah. yeah the first chapter is about. Um, a giant old chestnut that survived up to a point the blight, not like generations of a family that took pictures of it every day. Oh, it's so, I mean, it will turn anyone into a chestnut lover. Um, yeah. Speaking sure. of that book, are there other resources that you recommend people if they're trying to kind of get either inspiration for their garden or learn more? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I think you're probably talking to the wrong gardener. <laughs> I, you know, I think that there are people who are really knowledgeable about soil science and a little bit less um, sandboxy about it than I am. But, you know, like I mostly go from the West Coast seeds planting chart because it's for our area. And there's, um, what is it, the Stephen Solomon book is kind of the, the Forever Classic, it's um, Growing Vegetables in the Northwest. And, yeah, that's what I go to just for references. And then beyond that, I don't know. I think, I think there's other people who could tell you a lot more. <laughs> I, but I, I love your amateur um, uh, perspective in the sense that you have made me at least feel uh, over the years a lot more like I can approach it like an art or like something that I can just be curious about and try. Um, 
I still feel like I fail most of the time, but, uh, <laughs> but you've inspired me. So thank you for, for that. And thank you so much, Carrie, for being the neighbor willing to come on and just share what you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I definitely feel like an amateur and I definitely feel like we grow a lot of food. So you grow a lot I, I of food you can be amateur and get a lot of food. And not hungry. <laughs> you can be an amateur and not really hungry all winter long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thank you again. What a pleasure. Um, I really appreciate it. And I hope we'll be able to check in more about our, our gardens and more this year. Yeah. Thank you, Amanda. My pleasure. Nice to talk to you. Nice to be on the show. Thanks. Take care. And thank you, neighbor. We have got yet one more guest. Uh, if you want to call in with questions and still try to get them answered, please do at 250-935-0200. You're listening to Folk U Radio here on CKTZ 89.5 Cortez Community Radio. And we're going to have a little bit of a musical break while we get our next guest on. I once planted some little brown seeds with a pit-a-pet, 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 pet. He watered them often and he pulled out the weeds with a tug and a tug and a tug, tug, tug. The seeds grew tall and green in the sun with a bush, bush here and a bush, bush there. And a beautiful plant grew from each one. Oh. 
Free thoughts on the proceedings of the Continental Congress. Heed not the rabble who scream revolution. They have not your interest at heart. Oh God, tear this dude apart. Chaos and bloodshed are not a solution. Don't let them lead you astray. This Congress does not speak for me. They're playing a dangerous game. I pray the king shows you his mercy. For shame, for shame. Yo, 
He'd have you all unravel at the sound of screams But the revolution's coming, the have-nots are gonna win Just at heart to listen to you with a straight face Chaos and bloodshed already haunt us A solution and even talk And what if the Boston cost And all that we've lost and you talk about Congress does not speak My dog speaks more eloquently Extremely your mind is I pray the king shows you his mercy. Is he in Jersey? For shame for the revolution. Again, I'm gonna scream. scream. Honestly, look at me, please don't read. Not your interest. Don't modulate the key, then not debate with me. Why should a tiny island across the sea regulate the price of tea? Alexander, please. Burr, I'd rather be divisive than indecisive. Drop the niceties. You are listening to Folk U Radio here on CKTZ 89.5 FM, and we are talking all things soil, which has to get us into gardening and farming. I just have to say that that last song was Farmer Refuted, which was part of the mix made from the Hamilton uh, soundtrack. And before that, we had Spring Bottom by Cosmo Sheldrake. So we are really lucky now to have Sarah Stewart join us. Sarah is is one of our resident farmers here on Cortez Island, and her uh, her operation is called Wildflower Produce. Sarah, thank you so much for being willing to to come today. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, it's a real pleasure. Um, and we were both just commenting that um, at that last song, "Farmer Refuted," I I chose it because it had farm uh, in the title, but also because it's starting to look a little bit at the politics and you were mentioning that to this day that um, the price of what we pay for produce and things like that in the commercial market is not set by what it actually costs to grow. Um, so it's like we come so far and yet nowhere at all. Exactly. And I think the same problems that have existed for farmers for centuries still exist today. Um, trying to recoup the investment you put in at the beginning of the season because farming is a unique thing we're selling a product um, but it's not inventory that you purchase and then you then need to resell to recoup that cost you put in a lot of money at the beginning of the season hoping that things these living creatures will do what you want them to do and there's so many factors beyond your control besides just finding customers there's the weather and pests and disease and so there's a lot of things um that go into the products that aren't always reflected in the price of them. And I mean, it's sort of a perfect background to be having this conversation because we just talked about, you know, this whole show about soil and talk about something that you have to invest so heavily in, but has no uh, visible you know, thing to sell in the end, right? And so, um, you know, I, and I imagine this gets into when we think about what actually is a farmer, you know, today when I was like, come talk onto my show. And, and, and Sarah tried to get out of it at first by saying, well, I'm a farmer, not a gardener. And I was like, perfect. Um, but it got me to really thinking about what is a farmer? 
So for me, a farmer is someone that makes a living from growing and selling food, which is very hard to do. It's very different from gardening and very different from hobby farming because a lot of the times that's um, not necessarily... It's, it's holistic in farming in that um, part of the sustainability also has to be financial. And so you can make a lot of decisions to have sustainable soil inputs or um, saving your seeds and having sustainability that way. And one of the key factors is the financial side of it. So for me, a farmer <clears throat> makes a living from producing food. And back to how uh, then bizarre that becomes when making a living um, doesn't necessarily correlate to uh, the price, right? Like, you know, I mean, I, I, it feels like if we actually had to pay for things, what their value is, then the farmer would be the best paid, um, you know, person out there because we all know we need food. <laughs> right, we all need food. And um, and then for the number of hours, you know, farmers are paid by the hour, then we would all be rich. And that would, that would be great. <laughs> it would be helpful, at least. Um, but things as a, as a farmer, too, like you have to make decisions that are different than a gardener. So, for example, as a gardener, I would leave my pea trellis up and pick every single pea until they were finished producing. Um, but as a farmer looking at the, um, the financial side, but also the efficiency side of it, doing things like taking down your peas, even though they're still producing because it's dwindled and so if you can get more value from that square footage of bed space by replanting it and putting something else in in those short very short window of time we have to actually make a living then that's just kind of the sacrifice that you have and for me it's a lot of people can grow food and a lot of people are really good at it I'm not necessarily a very good gardener I'm not I don't consider myself to have a very green thumb but I'm very efficient and I'm very um I'm able to problem solve in a way that reduces the workload and increases the the yield that we're that we're getting out of it. Oh, I I what's one of the most hopeful things I've heard today is that you don't that you don't consider yourself having a green thumb and and all of a sudden I was like, "Oh my gosh, maybe I really just actually need to be a farmer." <laughs> <laughs> Growing food is very challenging. It's it's a, an organism that we're trying to create and we like to think of ourselves as separate from nature, you know, like this building we're in is no different than a bird's nest. This is all still part of nature. And so on a farm, you have to still follow the same rules that all of nature is is governed by. And so there's a lot of failures in it. So when you have a, a garden, you know, and you only have, so you have like two or three tomato plants and you get a blight, then you, can, you might lose all your tomato plants, you know. But if you have a larger scale and have a lot of diversity worked into it, then you can kind of mitigate some of those risks. So that gets me to um, the, the idea of the organism and, and plants or the soil being an organism has come up multiple times today. So I'm wondering about that, that very thing, the idea of soil creation and what, how you think about it on the scale of a small farm. Sure. Um, I adhere to the five um, principles of soil management, which are um, always maintaining living roots, always covering the soil, disturbing the soil as little as possible, increasing diversity and integrating animals, or if you don't have livestock, then adding organic material. And so there's lots of ways that on all different scales that you can always maintain these five principles. Like, so for example, 
always covering the soil. That can be um, having a cover crop during the winter. I use a lot of tarping because I don't till the soil, so I tarp beds to prep, uh, prepare them for the following season. Um, but on a home scale, you can mulch with leaves or um, uh, seaweed is another really good one that's really beneficial. And so I try to build soil by um, not disturbing it. Like I said, I don't till. And so for me, maintaining that stratification in the soil where it's different levels of penetration of moisture and sunlight and oxygen and letting the ecosystem that's so naked to us, you know, we can see earthworms and we can see little arthropods in the soil, but there's so much going on in there that I think if we could actually see what happens when you like stick a spade in or till the soil and what's actually happening to this completely alive organism, that it would be, we would have a different approach to it. Um, so I use, like I said, I use a lot of tarping to build soil. Um, in the wintertime, I run my chickens. I have a small flock of chickens. I run them over the beds, um, and then it's a win-win for everybody. I don't have to weed because my chickens do it for me. They get lots of delicious food. Um, you know, I'll put them in a bed of baby greens with kale and lettuce, and then they're really happy. And then they're also dropping their compost, like their manure, to increase the organic material in the soil. Um, and then I do that in the winter because there's a lag phase in between having animals on crops and then using that soil again for produce because there can be contamination issues. And then in the spring, um, to break up the compaction, I use a device called a broad fork. So it's a long, wide um, piece of metal with two long handles on it that you step on to push into the soil and then pull back. So it just lifts the soil to increase aeration without inverting it. And then you don't have to, um, you don't have to work as hard and the roots don't have to work as hard because it's a little bit softer and water is able to penetrate down. And then I always do soil tests each year as well. So I think one of the myths with organic farming is that there's no additives, there's no fertilizers, um, but there there are because we're farming plants that aren't native to here. You know, if I was growing cedar trees, I probably wouldn't need to change the soil very much. <laughs> but I'm growing things like tomatoes and, you know, kale. A lot of things are heavy feeders. And I'm taking so much from the soil. I do um, intensive gardening, so I do two to three rotations of crops per bed per season and so when you're taking that much from the soil you need to you need to give it back um so i do soil tests to make sure that i'm only adding what i need to add so that i'm not um, polluting the soil with extra um elements or anything like that and then again like as a financial standpoint i'm not spending money on things that aren't going to be absorbed into the soil or that i already have a, enough of for that season and it changes year to year i think it's one of the beautiful things and for me, like my soil tests are one of the most rewarding things. I look really forward to them each year because it's validation that my techniques and the things that I've learned and how I'm applying it is actually working. I, I, I find that interesting, the idea that you can take something that's good, a nutrient, and turn it into a pollutant by misapplying it or applying too much of it. And um, I haven't, I you know, I'm still really new gardener and I just do everything wrong first including you know I, I started with the idea you know because like when you start also like with laundry right you're like well more soap must be better right um, and it's not true in case you don't know that that's not true so I definitely would start with that same idea of like more must be better um and I know now that that's wrong um so what are there some things that you have found in particular that you have 
turn to again and again to bring a particular nutrient back to your soil here that you just find is common or just a good go-to. Um, right. So the, the three big main ones are nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. And so um, for me, my soil was really low in nitrogen because it had been farmed and garden for a long time. And so a lot of it had been taken. Um, so that's where the livestock, I think, is really important and having the chickens through there. Um, and then we have a really valuable resource of seaweed. You know, we're very lucky. Um, and it's collected in the fall and the winter so that you don't disturb any of the fish eggs that are there in the springtime. And so having that cause, um, helps to boost uh, some of the potassium in the soil. And so I th- and leaves as well, like are just really nutritious, useful things that are free and available. And often people just rake them up anyway. And so um, we often have like a complete set of nutrients just in our in our yard. One thing I use a lot of as a gardener and as a farmer are the so-called weeds. Um, these are pioneer plants that often are remarkable. They can live in really deprived soil. They can live in all these different diverse locations. And so as they're coming up um, in the springtime or throughout this season, there's a couple things I do. I always try to catch them before they go to seed. And that way you can continue to use them. If they've gone to seed, then you just kind of have to, um, some people have a separate compost pile just for weed seeds. But I either just lay them down in the walkways and then they act as my mulch. And then the nutrients that they took from the soil to then germinate and grow is then going back into the soil. Um, or sometimes I make compost tea out of them because a lot of them are really nutritious. Things like dock and dandelion have a really deep taproot. And so they're bringing up nutrients that sometimes other plants with a shallow root system can't access. And so you can actually like take the, um, the organisms that are growing in your environment and then utilize them. And I think having this concept of, of weeds, like there's no category of plants called weeds, right? They're just unwanted plants that humans have determined shouldn't be there. And so I think, um, recognizing them for what they are, they're, pioneer species that are meant to be there and allowing them to be there for certain times. Um, so for example, this time of the year, some of the beds, um, that were disturbed by the chickens didn't have mulch on them. So I'm just letting my weeds grow and I catch them before they go to seed. But that way I'm also adhering to one of the soil principles of always maintain living roots. And so having living plants in the soil is keeping all the bacteria and fungus happy because they're able to do that exchange with the plant roots and so it's like using these organisms for the purpose they were designed for. Okay, I was just going to ask you what that meant, maintaining roots. Okay, so let's go all the way with this. And this fits perfectly with what Caleb was talking about earlier in the exchange between the roots uh, and the soil organisms. Um, so then when you are ready, though, to use that bed for something else, are, do you take the roots out then? I do it a couple ways. So I sometimes I hand weed. Um, what I do most of the time is uh, tarping. And so I use um, black silage tarps that, um, depending on the time of the year, need to be on the beds for a different amount of time. It's not so much the deprivation of light. It's more the heat from being underneath the black tarp. But then it, gives, it does the same thing. It comes and it smothers those weeds and they die off in place. So then they're putting their nutrition back into the soil. And then sometimes um, I do the same thing for cover crop as well. And so it can um, also act as a mulch. You know, if you nuke a whole bed of cover crop with a tarp, you pull the tarp back and then you have this beautiful like pea or wheat mulch that's, that's just laying on the soil that you can just pull aside and then plant into. 
it, I just love it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now on the farm. Sure. It's a interesting time of year. It's definitely a transition time. Um, for me, just by doing this and living within the natural rhythms, your life kind of then starts to live with it. So um, the first week of February was one of the cross-quarter days between the winter solstice and the spring equinox. It's called in bulk in some, uh, in some realms. And it just happens to be when plants start to wake up, you know? And so that week, some of the crocuses started coming up. Some of the bulb flowers started coming out of the ground. My plum trees started to produce buds. And so the plants are responding to the changing season, which means that we now have to respond to the changing season as well. So a lot more weeds started popping up, things like that. So being in the transition phase right now, um, one of the things I like a lot about farming is how yin and yang it is. Um, So the summertime is definitely the go season. And then winter is a totally different skill set. You know, I do a lot of things like um, ordering supplies. I meticulously plan the farm and eat what's going to go in each bed. Um, And it never turns out like that, but it's important to have that plan. Um, And so that's finished. And there's a lot of infrastructure projects as well. So right now I'm kind of finishing those things up. You know, there's fencing um, projects that I'm working on. I'm finishing an irrigation project. Um, So it's a lot of just like filling in a ditch with a shovel. Just a lot of a lot of hours doing that. Um, and then also the first week of February is when I start my first seeds as well. And so that's always a pretty significant marker each year and a really nice way to feel like the season has begun. And when you start seeds, how do you do it? Um, I do it in cell trays. So I have trays of either 50 or 72 or 128 cells, um, depending on what's being seeded. I use a purchased soy mix because, um, I like it to be sterile. Um, and so I do, that's one of the items that I do purchase. And, um, I usually add a little bit of amendments to it as well, just so that, um, especially if some of the slower growing things, like I just started onions and leeks and they're going to be in those trays for quite a while because they're pretty slow to begin with. So they have a little bit extra nutrition. And then I, so I seed them water them in and then I put them in a small greenhouse that I have for germinating some stuff goes on heat mats just to give it a little bit of a jump I have my ginger on heat mats right now which I've never grown before so that's going to be an interesting experiment and we'll see if they if they do what I want them to do these living organisms I'm trying to coax into production and then they stay in the greenhouse until pretty much is full and I'm desperate for space and then they graduate outside under um under a cover so that they can slowly be hardened off and prepared to go in the ground. And what's next for your, uh, for your little farming operation? Um, the season's going to keep changing. Um, I'm expanding into more livestock. I just got um, some sheep, which is very exciting. And so part of the transition season, I'm teaching them my systems versus the systems from the farm they came from. So that's an interesting learning curve for all of us involved. Um, and then the season's going to pick up. Um, I'll be taking um, names for my CSA program. So a CSA is Community Supported Agriculture. And the idea is that you're purchasing a share of that week's harvest. And so it's a 20-week season. And you can either sign up for the whole thing or go by week to week and decide if you want to order each week or not. And so 
the contents of each week is set. And so you're always eating what's available and what's fresh and what's ready for that week in the season. So it changes throughout uh, from May to October. So it's um, like greens and carrots and things like that in the spring. And then obviously a lot of fruits in the summertime and then squashes and peppers and things like that in the fall. And I'll also have um, the farm stand open again soon, probably April at uh, Reef Point Farm at the end of Subtle Point Road. And I'll be at the market from the May long weekend until Thanksgiving. And if people want to sign up for the CSA, how do they reach you? The best way is to email me at wildflowerproduce at gmail.com. Okay, wildflowerproduce at gmail.com. That's right. And if someone forgets, they can always email you at folku.ca, and I'll, I'll track her down for you. Great, thank you. Okay, so we've got a little bit of time, and I really want to know, um, why you decided to become a farmer. People can't see you, but you're young, you're dynamic. Clearly, there was lots of things you could have done with your life. Uh, well, thank you for calling me young. <laughs> I definitely came to farming a bit later in my life. I was a gardener um, for quite a while, but was also pretty transient. Um, you know, so I'd garden for a season, then move, and kept starting up different ones. Um, I tried looking for jobs on farms for a couple of years, but because it's such low margins, it's actually quite hard to find um, em employed work. Um, before farming, I worked for nonprofits, and so I wanted to do something that was in line with my values, um, that felt meaningful. And I think that growing food, especially on a home garden scale, like growing your own food, I think is one of the only things that we can do that is has the lowest impact you know even if we buy organic food from the store a lot of times it comes from mexico or california and so it's still being shipped it still has a really large footprint um so i started working on farms um i started as a farmhand in 2016 at the age of 33 so it was a little bit later there's a lot of young people with nice strong healthy backs that get into it um in their 20s um so i was a farmhand for the first season and then um because i'm the bossiest. I kind of graduated to manager <laughs> the next year. Um, and so I was a field manager for quite a few years, about four years um, on other people's farms, and then decided that I wanted to um, lease land or make a change. At least I was living on the Sunshine Coast. And so I um, just went to visit a whole bunch of farms to try and find the right fit. And and then Reef Point came up, and it's a really amazing spot with established soil. Having people that have gardened there for a couple decades was incredible and a huge benefit and having an established orchard was uh such a blessing it's very very rare to find that um and so i i'm doing this work to just try and um walk the talk you know i i want to do something that is beneficial for the community and beneficial for the earth um and in the permaculture uh ideas there's earth care people care and fair share and i try to establish a business that's holistic in those three principles oh i just i i really love it it's nice having you here um and getting to know a little bit more about you do you have advice for people who either want to move into a, a more fulsome place with their own backyard garden to try to grow a more significant uh portion of their family's food or to take the jump all the way to farmer where would you advise them to go and get more resources? 
Um, I learned from woofing and from YouTube. Um, I have a degree in biology from quite a few years ago, but it's certainly useful in understanding plant physiology. But I honestly think that just doing your own research is really great. There's a lot of wonderful resources that weren't available, you know, even 10, 15 years ago. Um, and I think the best advice that was given to me um, by an established farmer was to start small. It can be overwhelming. You know, you can easily find hundreds and hundreds of varieties in one seed catalog to choose from. And so for a small scale gardener in their backyard, I would just choose what to grow what you like to eat. And that way you're going to be motivated to look after these plants. And then you're going to have such a wonderful reward when you then harvest them and consume them. And so I think that more than growing all of your own food, doing what you can manage is the most important thing. I'm only going to laugh a tiny bit because I feel like, well, I'm going to do more than I can manage only because I feel like I can manage so little. But I also, do you feel like when you moved to um, a place where, uh, you know, I feel like we're a ferry too far, but we're also a ferry um, more expensive than um, than other places. And, you know, so maybe, I mean, we're still not anywhere close to paying what the actual cost of food is and you know I would just sort of remind people that if you go to the developing world people spend you know a huge percentage of what they make on food um in many many cases it's the 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 vast majority of their of what they earn is spent on food um and you know in North America we spend the least percentage wise of what we make on food and so clearly we're spending nowhere close to what we ought to be on food um but that being said there are certainly remote communities um that spend more on food uh way more than we do even but we if you you can't live on an island without realizing that you're spending more than your your city um, counterparts so when you moved here did you see that people were actually just more awake to the idea that they were going to produce for themselves um, well, it's it's a tricky question for me to answer because I moved here right at the start of the pandemic. I moved here February 2020. And so there was a massive shift during that first spring, right? A lot of people were gardening. A lot of people were home. A lot of people were concerned about food security. Um, so it's difficult for me to comment on Cortez um, from when I moved here. But I do see that there are a lot of people here that garden and homestead and are self-sufficient and... Um, already have an interest in in producing their own food and so I think that it's such a wonderful place and one of the reasons I wanted to be here because there is that that mindset here and but for being a ferry too far that was for me that was one of the things I didn't anticipate in coming here before on the Sunshine Coast that was one ferry from the lower mainland um, where a lot of the distributors are to um, where I buy my supplies from and I honestly didn't anticipate the added cost of bringing them all this way you know and having a truck come over just for one delivery on Cortez and then going back empty is an extraordinary cost that again is just like a way to problem solve you know it's these problems that we have with like the supply chain and things like that to me are no different than like a phosphorus deficiency in the soil it's all still all part of nature and we just have to figure out ways that we can um, just solve that problem in a holistic way Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. I've learned a lot today, uh, and I feel 
just a lot more kind of hopeful than I did at the beginning of today's show. So thanks for being part of that. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And thank you for um, narrowing in on this topic. Soil is extremely important and food production is critical to everyone alive. So I appreciate it. And I'm just going to do another shout out while you're still here. If you are interested in learning more about community supported agriculture and the farm box that you can be part of through uh, through Sarah and her work, you can reach her at wildflowerproduce at gmail.com. Is that right? That's right. Okay. Yay. Uh, and thank you, neighbor, for joining us for yet another Folk you Radio show. I want to let you know, too, that there will be community garden spots available. If you want to garden on Cortez and you do not have a place to do that, you can do that at the, uh, the community garden space that's just behind the co-op. If you would like to learn more about that, you can leave a message for Emma at the co-op or you can reach her at Emma, E-M-M-A, at folku, F-O-L-K-U, dot C-A. As always, it is a true pleasure to be in community with you. Thanks, neighbor. Think. That's it for another edition of Folk U Radio. If you'd like to learn more about Folk U or subscribe to our podcast series, visit us at folku.ca. That's F-O-L-K-U dot C-A. Folk U is produced at CKTZ 89.5 FM Cortez Radio dot C-A. My little brain's almost always got something lame it's got to say. It's embarrassing, I'm all the stupid things.